We will be back at our evangelism study next week. So if you brought your little booklets with you, just hold on to them. And we'll be back to that study next week. But tonight we're going to pick back up Genesis 45. And we're going to read one more time beginning in verse 16. So Genesis 45 verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, To Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and I will see him. Before I die. So, the doctrine that we are learning from this passage is God's providence, and in particular, that God's providence works to bless His people. That is what is so beautifully illustrated here. It's the culmination of God's providence having worked through all of these negative, evil things in the previous chapters, and it is culminated in this wonderful blessing upon Israel and His family. God's providence extends a special care to the welfare of God's sons and daughters. God providentially works to ensure the well-being, the eternal well-being of those who are His. So we've been unpacking this doctrine under four headings. God's providence concerning the circumstances of our birth. God's providence concerning how He brings us to Himself in conversion. God's providence concerning how He meets our daily earthly needs. And we started this morning looking at God's providence in bringing us safely through death into heaven. And this morning, we spent all of our time with me trying to show you that we are biblically right to believe in the doctrine of eternal security. That is, we are right to believe that God preserves those who are His. 
and that Jesus will lose not one of the sheep that his father gives to him. If you are once saved, truly saved, born again, justified by faith, then you are forever saved. We saw that by looking at just seven out of numerous passages that I could have shown you. Now, there are reasons that Christians often struggle to really believe the doctrine of eternal security. Many of the reasons that we might struggle is just rooted in sheer unbelief. Uh, we look more at the temptations around us. We look more at our troubles, at our trials, at our scary circumstances, and we allow those things to become bigger in our minds than the clear teaching of the Word of God. And like Peter, in the midst of the storm, not paying attention to Christ, but looking at the wind and the waves, like that, we begin to sink. And so we must learn that the Word of God is more sure than even what we can see with our eyes. The Word of God is more sure than all of the threats and the dangers that this world, the devil, your flesh, can throw at you. But one different reason that Christians often struggle to believe in eternal security, to live in the eternal security that we have in Christ, is that they encounter passages in the Bible that upon first reading seem to indicate something very different. There are passages in the Bible that are warnings to us from God about a very real and a very present danger of falling away from Christ. Listen to some of these. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, 18-20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. Listen to this. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, whatever else we might say about those verses, they clearly teach, one, that it is possible for people to make shipwreck of their faith. And two, that real people have done it. We have two of their names, Hymenaeus, Alexander, real people who Paul says made shipwreck of their faith. Now how can that be true and what we saw this morning be true? 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So, not only is it possible for people to depart from the faith, not only has it happened in the past, but the Holy Spirit expressly says that it will happen in these later days. In other words, falling away is happening now. Departing from the faith is happening now. The later days are those days from when Christ ascended into heaven until the day He descends again. We are in the latter days. We've been in the latter days for 2,000 years. And Paul says this is a chief characteristic of the latter days. Some will depart from the faith. Now how do we reconcile that with the truth of eternal security? 
Let me make it worse before I try and make it better. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now some would suggest that those verses are the most terrifying of all. Listen to what these people had experienced. We're told that they had been enlightened, meaning that their eyes had been to some measure opened to the glories of gospel truth. We're told that they had shared in the Holy Spirit, meaning that to some degree they had experienced the Holy Spirit's work in their life. These people had tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They had experienced the powers of the age to come. In other words, these people knew what it was to hear the Scriptures and to taste its sweetness. These people knew what it was to think about the glories of heaven and the power of Christ at work in believers. And yet we're told that after all of this, they fell away. And we're told, according to the writer, that this kind of person will never ever be allowed again to come to Christ. That is, this person will never be saved. And doesn't that passage seem to stand in absolute contradiction to what we've heard this morning? Allow me to offer two explanations concerning these and other warning passages in the Bible about falling away from Christ. Explanation number one. These people who fall away from Christ, whatever else we might say about them, were never truly Christ's. Okay? These people who fall away from Christ were never truly His. They had faith, perhaps, but it was not God-wrought faith. It was not faith rising from a born-again soul. The truth is this. People can have very real and very serious religious experiences, even experiences with the Holy Spirit of God, and still not truly be saved. Think about Saul in the Old Testament, for example. People can be granted to taste something of the goodness of the gospel and yet not be truly born again and saved. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. So these people prophesied, these people cast out demons, these people did many mighty works, and they did all of these things in the name of Jesus. And yet still, 
they were not his. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. John, in that passage, is speaking about a group of folks who used to be counted among the church of Christ. If you would ask them in a previous time, are these folks Christians? The other Christians would have said, yes, they're one of us. They're with us. They profess Christ with us. These are believers as far as we can tell. These are true believers. Yet John says in the verse before this that these people had proven themselves to be antichrist. These are more than just unbelievers, period. He calls them antichrist because of the things they had begun to teach, the things they had begun to profess. They had rejected Christ. They had now made themselves opponents of Christ. And John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, the fact that these people forsook the faith and became opponents of Christ was evidence that they were never truly of the church. They were counted among the church, but they were never truly a part of the bride of Christ. John says, they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I think that's a very helpful verse in thinking about these things because it helps us to understand how we are to think about those who fall away from the faith. Do people fall away from the faith? Yes, that is biblical language. Do people make shipwreck of their faith? Yes, that is biblical language. Should we examine ourselves to make sure that we don't fall away? Yes. Must we be taking action to make sure we don't make shipwreck of our faith? Yes. For it is through that kind of action that God preserves those who are truly His. You see. But this passage helps us to understand that those who forsake the faith do not lose their salvation. They never had salvation. They were never truly one of God's. So explanation one is that those people who fall away from Christ never really knew Him as Savior to begin with. Now here is explanation two. The reason that God includes many warning passages in the Scriptures is that these are one of the providential means He uses to keep His people saved. See, now we're getting to the meat of the sermon. right? God keeps His people saved, but how? What does He practically do to keep us believing? Well, one of the many means He uses to keep His people believing? Scary passages. Now, the Bible is not just scary passages, is it? also full of precious promises like the passages on eternal security we saw this morning but mixed in with all of those precious promises are scary warnings why scary warnings because god uses those passages to bring his people into greater faith an unbelieving heart hears the warnings of god about the danger of making shipwreck of your faith 
And an unbelieving heart does not believe those warnings. It rejects those warnings. It does not receive those warnings. An unbelieving heart could care less about those warnings. This is a heart that doesn't believe. But the believing heart hears the warnings of God about the danger of falling away and it trembles. A believing heart hears God say to His children, Beware the danger of falling away. And the children of God quake and say, Oh God, don't let it be me. Don't let it be me. The believing heart hears the warnings of God and knowing the might of the devil and knowing the pull of the flesh towards sin and knowing the seduction of the world. The believing heart is driven to his or her knees crying out, Oh God, preserve me. Crying out, Oh God, if you don't keep me saved, I will not remain saved. I need you to keep me believing. And through those kinds of passages, the Christian soul is humbled to look to Jesus again. Faith is strengthened. Faith is renewed. Jesus, keep me believing. Jesus, don't let my heart forsake you. The warning passages are used by the Spirit of God to strengthen our faith, to keep us believing till the end. Now, those passages are just one of the many means God uses to bring His people safely to heaven. So let me mention four more. Four more out of the millions. I wouldn't presume to know half of them, okay? Or a quarter of them, or a tenth of them. But we're going to mention four that the Bible does tell us. Four providential means that God uses to make sure that His people make it to heaven still believing. Number one, this one is very sweet. God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. This is a wonderful truth about the providence of God. God's control of your circumstances is such that He will not allow any temptation to come to you that is beyond your ability to resist. Friends, quite frankly, there are a lot of temptations that you and I would not be able to resist. We are weak. And if you think you are strong, take heed lest you fall. We are weak. And if God allowed any temptation to come our way, we would find ourselves falling and falling and falling until sin once again ensnared us and our heart became hard and Christ was no longer sweet to us and we would fall away. But God does not let any temptation in the world come our way. God carefully, carefully plans and measures out the kinds of temptations, the degrees of the temptations that come into our lives. Put enough money in front of us. Put enough sexual pleasure in front of us. Put enough power and authority in front of us. Put enough fame or praise of man in front of us. And we wouldn't be able to resist. 
But God tempers our temptations. He measures their strength and only allows them to come against us so strong. The temptations that come into your life are never beyond your ability to resist if you are looking to Christ. God always provides a way of escape, a means of being able to endure the temptation without giving in. Church, when you and I give in to a temptation, it is not because we have been overcome by an enemy we could not defeat. Do you understand that? When you and I give in to a temptation, it is not because we were hopelessly outmatched. It was not because there was no other alternative to how things could have turned out. When we give in to temptation, it's because we refuse to make use of the power that God has given to us in Christ. When we refuse to remember God's word in that situation, when we refuse to speak truth into that situation, when we refuse to obey the commands that we know from God to flee against sin or to stand up against iniquity, when you and I choose to sin, it isn't that we had no chance of victory, just the opposite. The victory was guaranteed had we trusted and obeyed God. God does not put you in situations where you will be tempted beyond what you can bear. We, f- we are far too wimpy in our fighting against sin. We need to learn what it is to battle hard. We too often choose to surrender to the temptation when we don't have to surrender to the temptation. The good news of the Scriptures is that God will never allow His people to be truly overcome by temptation. We may backslide for a season. We may surrender again and again to sin when we don't have to. But God will never let His people surrender completely. By His Spirit, God will always bring us to repentance again. He will always strengthen our resolve. He will always cause us to love purity and to hate wickedness anew. When we begin to to slip away, to slip away, we're not fighting, we're not fighting, we're just giving in, we're just giving in. If you are one of His, Jesus will come to you with the rod of discipline. But He will use it as a loving shepherd to bring you back onto the narrow path so that you make it safely to heaven. He will not let you utterly fall away. Number two, number two. God will humble us when we are getting too proud. God will humble us when we are getting too proud. This is actually a great work of God's providence. Our God is watching us every moment. He's watching you every moment. And He is caring for your soul. And when He sees that we are beginning to be puffed up, He finds a way to burst our bubble. When he sees that our ego is beginning to blow up like a balloon, he will send a providential pin to bust it. When he sees that we are becoming self-reliant rather than Christ-reliant, he sends circumstances our way that pull the rug out from under us and remind us that we can't even walk apart from him. This is God's way of keeping his people believing on Christ He humbles us when we're getting too proud. It's actually a gift of love. It's a gift of mercy. So remember King Uzziah? Uzziah was 16 when he became king. Imagine that. 
king at 16. We're told that Zechariah instructed Uzziah in the fear of God. And so we're told that young King Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a good king, a faithful king. God helped him in battle against the Philistines and the Arabians. Judah became very strong under King Uzziah. King Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem, towers throughout the land. He cut out cisterns for the herds and agriculture began to boom under his leadership. Uzziah led a mighty army. They forged shields and spears and helmets, coats of mail, bows, slingshots. We're told that under his leadership, skillful men developed these war machines that were kept on the towers. They could shoot arrows and large stones great distances. We're told that Uzziah was marvelously helped by God and that he was strong. Guess what temptation was in Uzziah's life? The temptation to become proud. The temptation to begin to think, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Uzziah began to think too highly of himself. He began to ignore the Lord. He went into the temple and he took for himself the role that was not his, the role of priest. And he burned incense on the altar of incense. We're told that Azariah, the priest, came in and protested. It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. It is for the priest. It is for the sons of Aaron. And Uzziah got very angry with the priest. Had God left Uzziah to himself, he would have continued down a path of outright rebellion. Had God not intervened providentially, Uzziah, full of pride and self-sufficiency, would have continued in his anger against Azariah. He would have demanded his rights to be able to do what he wanted in this temple, in his kingdom, where he was king. And he would have made shipwreck of his faith, utterly forsaking the word of God. But God did not leave Uzziah to himself. God humbled him. In that moment of anger, God struck Uzziah with leprosy. Leprosy that would exist and remain upon him until the day of his death. Suddenly Uzziah had to live in a separate house from his family. He was never permitted in the temple again. His son, Jotham, had to take over the kingdom. God pulled the rug out from underneath King Uzziah and put him on his face. But he did so in love. He did so to save Uzziah's soul and to humble him, to bring him back to true faith. For a New Testament example, think about Paul. The temptation for Paul to be proud and to think too highly of himself must have been very intense. I mean, look at what God had done for Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul teaches about an incredible vision that a man experienced in what he calls the third heaven in which he heard things from God that could not even be uttered, that could not be put into words. Most people think, I think it's pretty obvious in the text, Paul is speaking of himself. Paul experienced some things from God that no other human being had experienced as he did. He was granted to have an experience with God that was rare and wonderful. 
But not only did God bless Paul with incredible revelations that were far too glorious to even be put into words, but God also blessed Paul with a thorn in the flesh. God knew that what He had given Paul might tempt Paul to exalt himself over his brothers and sisters in Christ. Look what God showed me. Look what I got to experience. You're going to put your word up against mine? Do you know what God did for me? God, knowing that that temptation would be there, gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think it's amazing that Paul tells church after church after church in his letters, I never cease to pray for you. I never cease to make mention of you in my prayers. But this thorn that was in his own flesh, whatever it was, he says he only prayed for it three times. He prayed for other believers every day. Apparently he was praying for these other churches and these other Christians every day, multiple times a day. But whatever this thorn was, he only prayed three times for God to remove it. The reason, Paul says, that he stopped asking God to remove this thorn was that after three times, God made it clear to him that this thorn in his flesh was for his good, for the good of his ministry. It was better for Paul and for the church and for the glory of God that Paul not become a conceited man. It was better for everyone that Paul not become proud. It was possible for even the great Apostle Paul to make shipwreck of his faith if God did not work to preserve him and to keep him humble. So Paul embraced the painful, humbling circumstance and accepted it as a gift from God. Mount Hermon here is a part of how God is providentially working to bless you and to bring you safely to heaven. When you begin to get get too proud, He will humble you. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. He chastises every son He receives. When God is humbling you, it proves He's treating you like a son or a daughter. If God does not discipline you, if He lets you wander off into sin, and you keep wandering off into sin, and you keep wandering off, and you're getting more proud and more proud, and your heart is growing harder and harder, and the sweetness of Christ is fading, fading, and He's not intervening, be scared. God disciplines the one He loves. God intervenes for those who are His. If He's not intervening, you get on your face. Plead with Him. Preserve me, O Lord. I'm going the wrong way. Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One day we're going to do... Maybe I'll get 
Meryl to do it sometimes, sermons on what it means to be trained by the discipline of the Lord. Don't waste your discipline. <laughs> you don't want it again, right? When it comes, be trained by it so he doesn't have to do it again. Some other time. Number three, number three. God will interrupt our planned paths. God will interrupt our planned paths. How does God providentially work to bring us safely, believing on Christ through death into heaven? He sometimes interrupts our planned paths and sends us a different way. He changes the tracks so that we thought we were going right, and all of a sudden, we're going left. He closes the door we thought we were going in, and he, He opens this one over here. He disrupts our best laid plans and He disrupts them for the safety of our souls. 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat of Judah is intent on joining the wicked king of Israel in a naval attack on Tarshish. You remember Tarshish, right? Jonah. This was the plan. Naval attack on the city of Tarshish. The results, I'm sorry, the resources were allocated They began building their ships, and yet God had a different plan. God destroyed the ships. We're not told how. I would guess a hurricane, something along those lines. But something came through and destroyed every one of the ships. And God disrupted the plans of King Jehoshaphat and saved Judah from what was likely to be a great deal of trouble. I love this. Hosea prophesied concerning the people of Israel in Hosea 2. Hosea said that Israel was seeking to forsake God. Hosea said that Israel was seeking to do wickedness. What was God's response? We're told that God would throw a wrench in their plans and He would not allow them to succeed. God said, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. I think that's a wonderful passage. It's God saying, I will thwart every effort of my people to wander away from me. I will block up their paths. I will frustrate their plans until they become so miserable apart from me, they're going to say, oh, I was happier in my father's house. Let me return. It's God's wonderful preserving grace. Church, sometimes we wonder what in the world God is doing. Why did we not get into that college? Why did that job opportunity suddenly just slip away? Why is the money not coming in for that endeavor that we had planned? Why did my relationship that I thought for sure was heading towards marriage suddenly fall apart? Things happen, and we we try to explain them. I thought my life was headed this way, and then. And sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it hurts bad. But if you are God's, you can be sure that He has disrupted your plans for a reason. He loves you. He frustrates your best plans in order to bring about His perfect plan concerning your soul and doing good to you. God is protecting you. 
God is setting your feet in a new direction because He is intent on getting you to heaven safely. This is God's providence at work on your behalf. Number four, last one out of many. Number four, God will cause His Word to be effective in our souls. God will cause His Word to be effective in our souls. How does God providentially bring you to heaven still believing? He causes His Word to bear fruit, to be effective in you. You sit in your seat on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings and you hear the Word of God preached. And time after time, God is causing that Word to have an effect in your life. It's not bouncing off your heart like a pebble off a window. The words are not simply going in one ear and out the other. God's Word is changing you. It's affecting your thoughts. It's affecting your attitudes. It's affecting your life. Friends, that is a good sign. You are not here by accident. God providentially brings you to hear His Word, to be confronted by His Word, so that His Word may preserve your soul. God gives you the will to be here. He gives you the desire to be here because He is going to do you good here. On the other hand, if God's Word does not mean much to you, you have reason to be afraid. If you sit and listen to the preaching of the Bible and you don't care about it, and it means little to you, you have other things that are top priority in your mind and your heart, and honestly, the truths that the preacher is preaching really are just bouncing off your heart like pebbles off a window. Well, if that's you, you should be afraid. Could it be that God has given you over to a hardened heart? Could it be that He is not providentially working to save you? He is providentially working to condemn you. God's going to get glory out of every one of us. I pray that every one of us will be vessels of His mercy where He gets glory by showing His goodness and saving sinners like us. But it is very possible that He will get glory over some of us as He condemns us justly to hell for our sins. If you are one of those who will be condemned to hell, one of the signs of it right now will be that the Word of God has little effect. That you sit in here week after week and you fail, you fail to pay attention you fail to take heed to the word. It means little to you. You'd rather be somewhere else. If that's you, that ought to frighten you. You should be praying, praying, oh God, let me be one of those whom you're working in my heart to make my heart fertile soil. Basketball analogy. Preacher is like a basketball player, right? And he's, and he's throwing truth after truth, right, out there. Taking shots. And the goal is for the truth to go into the net of your heart. To sink in, right? Nothing but net. We want it to, to go in. I don't want to be the kind of preacher who's just throwing bricks, right? It, it bounces off your heart and, and comes right off. But in this case, how well or unwell I shoot doesn't really make the difference. 
Because it's the Spirit who takes the truth as I speak it, and the Spirit takes that truth, and He determines what happens when that truth hits you. It is the Spirit who determines whether that truth goes in or whether it bounces off. That's the providence of God. And so, if you want it to go in so that the Word can have its effect of saving you, pray. Humble yourself before God. Say, oh God, let me be one that your Word is at work within Pray that God would give you faith, preserve your faith, not allow your faith to wither away and die. If you don't have the Word regularly coming into your soul, your faith will die. It's the nutrients of your soul. It's the daily bread of your soul. The Word of God is your daily bread. If the Word of God is not coming in, your faith will shrink, it will wither away, it will die. God keeps His people saved by strengthening their faith through His Word. And by the way, it's not just in the time of preaching. It means that God brings a brother or sister in Christ to you at just the right time to speak His Word to you, to encourage your soul when you need that encouragement. It means that God uses the Bible and good Christian books and audio sermons and hymns of praise and a thousand other means to bring His Word to His people when they need it to keep them believing. This is God's everyday preserving, sustaining love expressed to you through His providence. So that's just four of the ways that God's providence works to keep us saved. And after six messages, we're finally going to leave Genesis 45. But I want to be very clear. We have only scratched the surface of the glories of the providence of God. There are many strands of thinking that we could have gone down to show the glory of how God does us good through His providence. I chose four. I chose four big ones, ones I thought were particularly important. Read John Flavel's book, The Mystery of Providence. See a thousand other strands we could have walked down to see the glory of God's providence in doing His people good. Let me encourage you to think often about God's work in your life. Look for His working. See His hand in the things that happen to you each day. Thank Him that He is preserving your soul. And finally, let me remind us all that we do not deserve this preserving providence. All this is ours because God loved us while we were yet sinners. All of this is ours because Christ purchased it for us by laying down His life for us on the cross. Mount Hermon, apart from Christ, nothing I've said would be true. Apart from Christ, none of these blessings of God's providence could be ours. It is Jesus and in Jesus alone that God's providential care becomes ours. So praise your Savior. Love Him. Be grateful to Him. We are greatly loved every single second of every single day. Praise God for giving you this in Christ. Let's pray.